This episode of For the Love with Jen Hatmaker is brought to you by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. They can be big, difficult, even scary life things, and also small inconveniences that add up day after day. The thing is, when we keep them all bottled up on the inside and just try to grin and bear it, it can start to affect us and the people around us negatively. We may even isolate ourselves, which makes it even worse. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. This was the case for me when I was at the highest stress level in my life, where the stress was even having physical consequences for me. Therapy was a huge part of my healing journey to learn how to manage the stress. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash for the love today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash for the love. Hi, everybody. My name is Remy. Welcome to the For the Love podcast with your host, Jen Hatmaker, my mom. She writes books and speaks to crowds, but she mostly loves talking to amazing people on this podcast every week. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. It is Jen Hatmaker, and I'm so glad that you're here. So last week we finished our faith series with the absolutely wonderful Lecrae, and we're slated to start a new series today. But as most of you probably know, we lost our very beloved friend this week, Rachel Held Evans, um, friend to so many of us, <laughs> a sincere friend and a good one. And it's not fair. And she was 37 and she had a devoted husband and a three-year-old son and a baby girl who's going to turn one next week. And it's a real loss to us as her friends and colleagues. It's a loss to the world. And so I went back this week. Um, Rachel was in the first faith series that we did here on the podcast. And I went back and I just listened to the whole thing. And she was a real, real treasure. And hearing her voice and sitting under her beautiful leadership once again was just so precious. And so we just wanted to rerun her episode this week. We wanted to um, have Rachel actually close out the faith series. And I wanted you to put, I want to put her teaching in front of you in case you didn't hear her the first time around. Everything that made Rachel's influence and authority and giftedness special is included in this conversation. We touched on her best work and we talked about her book that was current at the time inspired, which is my favorite of all her books. It's a little hard to, it's hard a little bit because we also, I laughed too. You will too. Rachel's really funny, but She was actually in labor with her baby, Harper, while we recorded this show the first time (laughs) in labor. 
And I suggested to her that she named her baby Jennifer because nobody's using that name anymore and she could be a trendsetter. And it's just a great memory. And uh, she was such a great mom. This is one year ago, almost exactly. So I want you to listen to our show to get today. Her leadership will be so missed. I just, it's not fair. It's just not fair. So I thank so many of you who have been so wonderful and honored her life in such clear ways this last week and have been so kind to her family and to her friends and about her influence on your life. It's been so powerful to listen to and to watch. And so I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for this community and I'm grateful to put my friend in front of you again. Let's let her teach us and continue to teach us and, um, and carry the torch. So I am so glad to re-air my original um, interview with my friend, a mentor, my colleague, my sister, Rachel Held Evans. Okay, my friend, welcome to the show. I could not be more pleased to have you on today. I'm so happy you're here. Thank you. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. I love the show. And so I'm excited to be a part of it. Well, I love you. And let's get serious right now because I want everybody listening to know something (laughs) right out of the gate. I kid you not, listener. Rachel is literally having contractions right now. (laughs) You are great with child, as they say in the Bible. Yes, the days have been accomplished that I should be delivered. And (laughs) I mean, (laughs) literally, literally, she is in early labor and we're recording a podcast. And so I want you to feel very honored that she did not call me this morning and say, listen, this is just not going to happen today. I'll have a baby. Um, They're pretty spread apart. Like it's not, it's not like I'm having them. If I start having them every seven minutes, you'll know, but it's, oh my gosh, Rachel. Once, once an hour. That's oh I got my God, I can't even. You're going to have this baby today or tomorrow. I cannot believe it. Um, I'm so excited for you. So listen, um, when I see you in the summer, you're going to have this real baby with you. And I cannot wait. We're both speaking at the Evolving Faith Conference, which you and Sarah Bessie curated together. I am like, this is one of the events I'm most looking forward to on my calendar this year. Cool. It's sold out. Well done. Um, and I like how you talk about it. You, this is, it's kind of, this conference is going to hit on everything from like the Bible to parenting, to politics, to justice, to art, to science. It's really a big tent. And I love that. And of course, everybody is welcome. Like the doubters and the dreamers and the parents and the singles and the pastors and the church dropouts and our LGBTQ friends and Bible nerds and post evangelicals, like everybody come everybody in. Um, so it's in North Carolina. So for those of our listeners who do not live in North Carolina or were not able to get tickets, will you tell them just a little bit about what you'll be talking about and what you kind of hope, what's your, what's your dream for this evolving faith space? Cause I love it. 
Yeah, and thank you so much for joining us. We, that that oh, was, gosh. oh, we're so glad to have you. You're just like the perfect fit for this <laughs> this event. That was the easiest yes I gave. <laughs> well, it's all my favorite people. Well, I feel like you traveled too much already, so I felt a little <laughs> bad about asking. Like I know it's bad when you take a picture and put it on Instagram, and I recognize the carpet from the airport. I'm <laughs> oh like, oh, it looks like she's in DFW. <laughs> totally, <laughs> so so true. I, I appreciate you taking the time. It means a lot actually but um yeah so what we and we would have actually probably chosen a bigger venue if we'd known it would have sold out so quickly so I'm sure you had a little something to do with that sold out fast yeah it really did but and I think it's because what we're trying to do here is um gather together people who for whatever reason are maybe feeling out of sync with their Mm -hmm. faith community maybe they're just wrestling with some big questions about their faith and uh, doubts. Um, Maybe they just feel like their faith has changed so much in the last five, six years. They don't Mm -hmm. recognize it anymore. Maybe they're feeling cynical about the state of the world and and, the political climate and all that sort of thing. We just wanted to gather all these people together and say the main message is, you're not alone. <laughs> you That's know, good. there are other people in the same boat who are having the same uh, questions and experiences. And uh, so we want it to just really be a time mostly of, of folks being able to connect with one another and then to connect with, we have a really pretty great lineup of uh, speakers who are going to facilitate uh, a lot of these conversations. So like, really happy that Austin Channing Brown got on board and we have like Pete Enns to talk about the Bible and yep. Dr. Will Gaffney who wrote this fantastic book called Womanist Midrash to talk about the Bible. So we've got people who are really smart totally. and um, activists and artists and, and scientists, people from all these different fields who we think will help facilitate conversations around, hey, wh- what do you do when your faith changes? Um, it's good. Yeah, yeah. So we're we're pretty pumped about it, and I, I think it will be a good time. We're offering childcare, too, which actually— I know, it's amazing. That was one of the reasons it went so fast. People were like, childcare? Sign me up. Totally. So, but I think it's actually pretty important because there's so many moms— and and dads who would love to be at events like these and they never can make it work because what do you do with the kiddo? So my kid, (laughs) my kid, my toddler will be there. I can guarantee and I'll have the other one like hanging off my boob. So (laughs) (laughs) I love that because, um, these are really important questions and, and so many of us are having them, but I rare, they rarely find a home in a, in an event setting. Mm -hmm. Um, they're more around our podcasts and on our social media feeds and kind of in our, um, articles and essays. And so I like this face-to-face option for these difficult spaces and questions and these complications of faith, um, where these are very, very, very rarely represented in uh, mainstream Christian conferences. And so I'm not surprised at all. It's sold out in a hot minute. Um, and I will look forward to seeing you guys put this, take it on the road. So that's, I already told Sarah that I'm like, listen, you've got something here. This is, you are meeting a need, a felt need that I don't see a lot of other people meeting. And so I can't wait for the evolving faith tour. So that's my prophecy, um, over this space and just, 
just received mm, it. Um, getting prophesied over by Jen Hatmaker. Yeah, I think we'll definitely we'll. I think we're already thinking maybe we need to take it to the West Coast next time. So totally yeah, love that. So listen, I um I have followed you and I have read your work literally for years. I mean, you were um, one of the early voices, um, kind of breaking through the cacophony for me. And um, listening to what you said, you're super super smart. You're real heady. You're intellectual. You're an academic and, and watching you sort of pick your way through, um, big ideas and theology, uh, was very instructive for me. And you gave me a lot of permission uh, years ago to even ask hard questions. I didn't know we were allowed to do that. <laughs> and, um, so y- your story has meant a lot to me and I know all about you and I know your whole life, but, some of our listeners might not. So I wonder, um, cause you, you have referred to yourself as a Bible nerd in high school and that you were very immersed in scripture from a really young age. Like I completely identify with your, with your upbringing. So can you tell everybody just a little bit about your background, um, specifically your background in faith and how that got started, how it developed and even how it is, um, evolving now? Yes. I grew up, um, in a really loving and grace-filled home, actually, uh, but in a very conservative Christian uh, subculture, deep in the Bible Belt. Uh, and so, yeah, I grew up memorizing large portions of the Book of Romans, you know, before I was 11. I had yep. like Romans 9 down, man. I, <laughs> and, uh, you know, sword drills and and. I won the Best Christian Attitude Award three years in a row at school. Congratulations. And I was pretty good at kind of collecting my Best Christian Attitude Awards, you know, however they manifested themselves through my life. You know, I, sure. I ended up in a public high school uh, where I was witnessing to, you know, the Methodists, basically, because everybody right. was already Bless Christian. Them. Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I took it upon myself to to witness to people. I psyched myself up with DC Talk in the morning. and Sure. Um, yeah, all that stuff. I was a, a president of the Bible club in high school. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. that meant because we were kind of like a everybody gets a trophy about homecoming. So that meant I got to be on the homecoming <laughs> court representing the Bible club. Wow. So, obviously, I was super popular. It's <laughs> <laughs> amazing. Total Bible nerd. Like, um, but it was also, you know, my faith was an important part of yeah. my life and sustenance and, and gave me a sense of direction and purpose. And I'm grateful for it. Uh, I'm actually really grateful for that pretty intense Bible background. It uh, prepared me for a lot of things. And I'm glad I know my way around a Bible. And I'm glad that I was introduced to Jesus at a young age. I feel fortunate about all of those things. Um, but, you know, once I was in college and shortly after graduating from college, I just started wrestling with some pretty big questions right. about my faith. Because I always thought that, like, I would go to this Christian college and they would answer all my questions for me. Cause I still had some lingering questions like, you know, about, is it true that most people who've ever lived on the planet will go to hell when they die because they're not evangelical Christians in America? Wow. Right? You know, is it truly true that, you know, what, what do I do with these passages of scripture that seem to condone genocide and uh, misogyny right. and the oppression of women? And what do I do with, you know, the fact that, um, you know, I always felt called to ministry, but I was told that, as a woman, I had no place in that world. You know, how, what do I do with all of these sort of disparate, um, all these questions? And I kind of thought that 
my you know, conservative Christian college would just give me the answers and I would feel satisfied. But that didn't happen. I felt even less satisfied. And I, so I graduated from my Christian college um, with my you know, best Christian attitude awards in tow and kind of just stopped believing. It was a yeah. shock to me as somebody who had grown up thinking she would always stay in the faith uh, to just not believe anymore or to just to have days where I didn't believe. And it's so lonely. It is the loneliest feeling to be standing in your church and the people next to you, everybody has their arms raised, they're singing in worship and you're standing there and you're like, I'm not sure I believe a word of this. Um, And so I started writing about that experience. And really, I kind of started blogging right when blogs were, you know, all the rage. You know, I miss them. (laughs) They're not as as significant to the the dialogue anymore. But I started blogging Uh through all these questions and and thoughts and started writing about them and managed to connect with a bunch of other people who were also standing in their churches thinking they were the only people. Uh, And that just gave me so much life to just, it's that you're not alone thing to find other people in the same situation. So that kind of, I'd always wanted to be a writer since I was a kid. I knew I wanted to write, but that really, that experience of doubt, um, Hmm. just wrestling with faith that really informed what I decided to write about. Mm. And so you're in your early to mid twenties. You're sort of in this lonely space of doubt. Um, you start writing about it and then how, what happens to your faith? Um, as you sort of press into this instead of run away from it. Yeah, well, I think there's so much freedom in that because I, th- mm-hmm. I felt like I, I reached a point where there, I could have gone two ways. I could just fake it and pretend like everything's fine and mm-hmm. I'm totally on board with everything about being a Christian. Uh, or I could get real uh, with God and with people and say, I don't know about this. What about, you know, I don't know if, if I believe this or this doesn't ring true or this, this seems like an oppressive teaching. Um, and I felt that God wanted Rachel, not some sort of shadow fake Rachel, <laughs> not That's somebody right. who was pretending that she believed, but somebody who was in it, who would take the risk of faith. Because I think like recognizing that faith is actually a risk, like any significant relationship in your life, your relationship with God is a risk, uh, you know, that you take that, um, you know, faith isn't about having it all lined up and believing everything a hundred percent. It's about following Jesus, even when it's not entirely clear, even when you don't have it all figured out. And so what it came down to me was just, you know, the story of Jesus is so compelling. Um, the story of Jesus is just the story I'm willing to risk being wrong about. Uh, and that just, I just can't, can't get rid of Jesus. He's the one. <laughs> That's something I so appreciate about you and, and mm. how you have shared your faith. Cause I think this is where you and I have a lot in common is just, mm-hmm. we cannot shake it off uh, no. he, with all the questions, with all the flack we might get with all the, the uncertainties and, and the risk taking. There's still just something about Jesus that is so compelling and so true that resonates is so true that we can't let it go. So that's it. So we stick with it. <laughs> we do. And you know what? You you provided some pretty good pavement for a lot of us too because first of all, it was courageous to talk about doubt inside faith. That is not something we're 
typically granted permission to do. Um, that is not often met well. And so the fact that, first of all, you just started started there and started reading and writing and lear- learning from that space was really important. Um, and then what, you, what you've done for me and just countless other people is that you just refused to check your brain at the door. And sometimes that is that is where there's a fork in the road in a faith journey because um, the narrative I think that a lot of us get is that doubt in any kind of way is, first of all, some sort of indictment on who you are and your character and your faithfulness. Um, and then there's just this sort of, well, I don't know, shruggy shrug. That's just what it says. And that's just what we do. And you have pushed really hard on ideas and doctrines, um, that have come out of scripture that have been used to harm people that have been used erroneously that have been understood poorly. And you sort of took an academic approach, um, to a lot of really hard questions that for me are just so relieving. And so I, this is a perfect segue because I want to talk about inspired your new book. You sent me an early copy and I was halfway through when I messaged you. I don't know if you remember this. And I was like, this is so good. I mean, it is so, so, so good. So for everybody who's listening, first of all, we'll have it all linked, but it's called Inspired, Slaying Giants, Walking on Water, and Loving the Bible Again. And first of all, I don't even know where to start. I mean, like, uh, I, I want all my kids to read it. I want all my friends to read it. And you are not just smart. You're a writer's writer. I mean, you are a such a good writer that I'm angry at you. And <laughs> that's such a comp. Every writer wants to hear that from another writer. Like I got a little are. mad at you. I feel that way about your, <laughs> I feel that way about your ability to write humorously without it ever feeling <clears throat> cliche or silly or but a boom. Like it is hard to write right. humor and you write oh it gosh. like it's, you're like Mark Twain. And that is a high compliment for me. So hey, I appreciate it. So nice. It always means a lot when we writers make each other a tad angry. It's so true. That is, that is the highest compliment we can give. And this book is so, so good, Rachel. You wrote it with honesty and integrity and a little bit of whimsy. And it's, it's so accessible and it's so smart. And every page I'm like nodding my head going, that makes sense. This makes sense. This is, this is checking your heart and your brain at the door at the same time. And it is so relieving. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the book, um, why you wrote it, what readers can come to expect from it, maybe a favorite part or something that you loved in the the process of writing it. It was definitely one of my favorites to write because uh, I spend a lot of time, like I'm kind of still that Bible nerd who likes to spend her free time reading Bible commentaries. You so, are. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's not exactly the kind of thing that gets you invited to lots of dinner parties. <laughs> <That's> true. <laughs> but true. It's, been, it's been useful uh, in the sense that I, I really wanted to try to communicate to people some of what I was encountering as I was reading these commentaries and as I was studying more about, um, you know, how to interpret the Bible and and just reading a lot more scholarship that uh, was yes. really helping me seriously address some of those questions that I was struggling with. And, they, and I was encountering responses to those questions that took the questions seriously and that also kind of provided some ways to think about the Bible that I had just not 
thought about before. And so a lot of it was, frankly, uh, you know, Jewish interpretations of scripture and then just really quality scholars like Walter Brueggemann and Peter Enns yeah. and then, uh, you know, like womanist and liberation interpretations mm-hmm. of uh, particularly Hebrew scripture was super informative to me. And so I wanted to take all that stuff that was in my brain and try and make yeah. it accessible to like regular people who get exactly. invited to dinner parties and don't yes, sit exactly. home reading their Bible commentaries. Their Hebrew commentaries. <laughs> right. right. So, um, yeah, so that's what kind of how Inspired was born. And uh, so what I wanted to do is I felt like probably the biggest mistake we make with when reading the Bible is we misappropriate, we misunderstand the genre of a given text. Uh, we don't understand that you know the epistles are, in fact, letters, and that should change how we read the epistles. And that, you know, the Bible is full of poetry and proverbs and laws and letters and traditions and mostly stories. And, and when we understand the, the, the background and the genre of those texts, we better understand what uh, they're intended to communicate to the first people who encountered them and then also to us today. So uh, yeah, I had a little fun with this book because this is the first time I've ever uh, done something like this. I, I Every other yeah. chapter is like a creative chapter where I do uh, like I write some poetry and I write some, uh, you know, soliloquies and monologues and did a little choose your own adventure story and a short screenplay to kind of bring out this idea of genre and how it affects how we read the Bible. And then kind of tried to walk folks through from Genesis to Revelation, um, different ways of looking at the Bible and how they've been helpful for me for reconciling some of the questions I had about the Bible. It doesn't solve everything. I try not to, you know, particularly when it comes to like the war stories of scripture, I try not to tie a neat and tidy bow on that because that's never what I wanted to hear from people like, oh, this is easy. Genocide in the Bible? No problem. <laughs> that's not the yeah, kind of approach, good point. That's not the kind of approach I've ever appreciated. So I try to introduce people to different ways of looking at it, but then um, to not just solve it for people because my readers are smart and yeah. they don't like it when people tell them exactly what to think. They like it when that's people true. tell them how to think. <laughs> and here's some options and some ways of looking at things. So yeah, it really is. It is a love letter to the Bible and it's about you know, struggling with the Bible for so many years and then kind of coming back to it and seeing it with fresh eyes. And uh, yeah, I'm very thankful for the scholarship that uh, brought me to write this and mm-hmm. grateful too for all the scholars who looked it over the manuscript, looked the manuscript over yeah. before I published it because, you know, got to know what you don't know. So I had a lot yeah. of help, <laughs> a lot of help with this book. Um, so I hope it takes good scholarship and makes it kind of fun and exciting and whimsical and interesting. It is that. And I, I I'm laughing because I'm thinking about how this sounds to somebody listening, like, cause it's so heady and it's so academic. And all I can promise you, everybody listening is that, I mean, it just, it just skips along. I mean, it brings a, a normal reader so deeply and easily into the conversation. It's so well explained, Rachel. Like, so I remember thinking as I was reading Inspired that um, so few of us, so few of us have been exposed to um, different types of scholarship to different types of, um, theologians and interpretations. It's such a narrow, narrow, um, space that a lot of us have been brought up in the church and, and and even just 
all the, your, I mean, your bibliography is so long and all these different, um, thinkers and leaders that you're citing. I'm thinking, I I haven't heard of so many of these people (laughs) and, and it was so useful. It was just so useful. Why wouldn't we, um, learn from our Jewish interpreters? Like why, why aren't we all reaching for that as our first teacher? It just makes sense. And so, um, one Jews too, I have to jump off on this because I get so excited about this. The posture that the Jewish community takes towards the Bible is so much healthier, I think, than a lot of uh, sort of conservative Christians take. Because the posture Uh towards the Bible is when there's a conflict or or an apparent contradiction or a troubling story, like the binding of Isaac, you know, when Abraham doesn't seem like father of the year to obey God to that extent where you're willing to sacrifice your kid, you know, that has troubled Jewish scholars for centuries, but instead of running away from it, they see that as an invitation to really wrestle with the text and to ask each other questions and to debate. And so it's, it's sort of like the Jewish posture towards scripture is that it's a, a conversation starter, not a conversation ender. And so oh, many Christians kind of come to the Bible like we're looking for ammunition to win a debate, you know, and or to, you know, we think there's just one meaning from this story. We have to figure out that meaning and then defend it at all costs. It's kind of this zero sum right. game. Whereas the Jewish posture towards the Bible is where there's a contradiction or or a question or an unanswered question, where there's even a kind of a hole in the story, you get to imaginatively fill in that hole. There's an invitation to sort of play and to accept the Bible as, um, to accept scripture as, um, yeah, an invitation to conversation. And, and that that's, I have a Jewish friend named Ahava, and I think she put it perfectly. She we were, she helped me with my year of biblical womanhood project and we were Skyping and she said, Oh my goodness, her husband's a rabbi. Uh, she lives in Israel, actually. Her husband's a rabbi. And she, she said, you know, he was, we invited a bunch of other rabbis over to the house one night and everybody was eating and debating Torah and, and they were going back and forth and nobody could agree. And we started to run out of food and they woke the baby up twice. And she said, Rachel, it was wonderful. <laughs> I love yeah, it. Because it was like, yeah, it was, yeah. she knew that, that that scripture, that text brought them together into community and gave them something to talk about. Like if the Bible were easy to understand, if it were simplistic, if it were plain, we'd have nothing to talk about with God or with one another. Uh, and I think God gave us the Bible to be you know, a conversation starter like that to to invite us into community because, you know, being people of faith isn't just about being right. It was about being a part of a community. And the Bible gives us so much to talk about, infinite, sure does. infinite things to talk about. And t- to me that, yeah, I, I appreciate that the Jewish posture seems to welcome that. And you see that reflected in how Jesus engaged scripture and how Paul, the apostle Paul, solidly Jewish <laughs> engaged scripture. And since really it's in keeping with both the Jewish and Christian tradition to engage the Bible that way. So yeah, that's my, I like a that. big soapbox of mine is, is, is it's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> I think we've forfeited, um, a sense of curiosity yeah, in our exactly. generation that, mm-hmm. um, I, I think used to keep a lot of spaces open and interesting and connected. And I don't, I, I, I can only reach for what I think is fear. I think it's a fear-based response, um, for a number of reasons. Um, 
which just shuts down so much curiosity. And so I, I'm not surprised at all that we have to look to a different tradition yeah. to teach us how once again, to come back into dialogue around ideas in the Bible that are important and they matter and they're not always plain and clear. And so in, um, in inspired, you do talk, you talk about sort of your, shift and, and, and move towards being a progressive Christian and some of the events that got you, um, to that space. And so, uh, you know, a couple of years ago you were in the spotlight, you and I, um, are no strangers to the spotlight. <laughs> what? <laughs> um, what? For, for you know nothing again. about this. No, no, no. You're just going to have to tell me what it felt like, um, to, uh, push against some evangelical boundaries and you, you question things like, um, where do women and people from the LGBTQ community fit within the church? And, you know, I deeply care about both of these as well. And you and I share so much um, in it. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about um, what what are you fighting for when you're asking these hard questions on behalf of people and um, when you're wrestling publicly with the theology of a traditional um, sort of evangelical faith community that may exclude and limit the role that certain people can play. Yeah. Um, and I bet you, you can totally relate to this response, Jen, because I always mm-hmm. think about like the people I meet when I'm traveling and like in a book signing line and they tell me their yeah. stories. I always think about them when I'm kind of pushing and fighting. Like I th- yes. always, always think about the mom who hugged my neck and cried so hard. I had tear stains all over my shoulder. She said, thank you for teaching us how to better love the gay community. I only wish it had been in time for my son. Oh and my gosh. I, in those few words, we knew exactly, yeah. we knew exactly the story. And I'll, I just, I can't get her out of my head, you know, and, and I can't mm. get it's story after story after story like that of folks who, for whatever reason, they or somebody they loved were excluded, treated differently, marginalized by their faith communities. And, um, you know, they're just, they love Jesus. <laughs> um, but they were told they didn't belong. I just, I've always, I think my mom always had a tender heart for people like that. And I think I maybe got that from her, just that sort of tender heartedness. I think you have it too, mm, where, I do too. yeah, you know, you just can't, can't get it out of your head. And, and, um, and I think it's a good thing. I think sometimes, sometimes faith communities try to knock that out of you. And I don't think that that's, mm. that's healthy or good. I think that tenderness, as hard as it, hard as it can be to have that tenderness at times, I don't know. I, I'm trying to see it as a gift. And so, yeah, it's really, it was the stories of people like that, that made me, that changed my mind, you know, and I think you can relate to that as well. And then that made me feel like, um, I needed to, as much as I could, use the platform that I have to try and listen to and advocate for and share the stories of people who, for whatever reason, have been, uh, you know, kind of marginalized or left out or pushed to the sidelines um, so that I don't have to hear stories like that anymore from moms like that. No mom should have to go through that. Um, And so really, I mean, on on the hard days, I remember this is about people's lives and yeah. So I try to be as good an advocate as I can be, but you know, that, that's not always easy, but no, it's I, not. I, you know, the pushback never really bothers me that much. It doesn't bother me as much anymore. Uh, it used to, at first it bothered me, I think, and you 
probably can also relate to this. The hardest thing is when you feel the rejection from close family and friends. That's so different. Like people say, how do you deal with all the trolls on the internet? Well, I block them. Like that's that's like actually not a big deal. It's not the trolls on the internet that keep me up at night. It's the friends that just stopped calling. Um, It's so hard. It's so, so hard. That's where you feel the loss, I think, the most and where it feels like the biggest sacrifice. Not taking a public stand on something you really believe in. That's actually, that's just not that hard for me. And, right. you know, dealing with, you know, the negative feedback from strangers. But it's those quiet moving aways from people who were once really close to you that um, that's what really stings. That's what's, mm. that's, that's what's really hard. But, you know, the other day I got a, a handwritten letter from somebody I went to college with and she said, uh, she was a close friend then. She said, uh, you know, I'm one of those people who moved away from you and was afraid to be associated with you. And she said, but you know what? The last year has not been a great year. And I find myself asking a lot of the same questions that you were asking. And she said, I wasn't a friend to you then, but I'm ready wow. to be a friend to you now. So even, you know, as a, as a message of hope, even the friends that you lose, sometimes you all end up finding each other again, mm-hmm. you know, because of life circumstances. And um, most people at some point in their life, go through a crisis of faith. Um, and it might be when they're in their 20s. It might be when they're in their 80s. But most people have that experience at some point. And if you have been the kind of person who's open about your own experience, you'll be surprised how many people kind of come back and want to talk about it. So kind of pressing into this idea that you were just talking about, yeah, you, I read a quote from you and you said, um, I believe that the sacraments are most powerful when they're extended, not simply to the religious and the privileged, but to the poor, the marginalized, the lonely and the left out. So I'm wondering, um, who, who would you consider the lonely, the left out, the marginalized right now? And I wonder how, how do you think we can unwind ourselves from this narrative that makes the Bible our shield essentially against groups that we are afraid of, or we can't relate to, or we don't live exactly the same? Uh, Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. And I use the language of sacrament because I'm, you know, Episcopalian and we always go there. (laughs) Everything's about communion. Um, But I mean, I, even that like extending sacraments to like, even then I think I've shifted in the last few years to, to realize that it's not just about like me, a pretty privileged white Christian girl opening up the table, opening up the table to the marginalized. It's actually, you know, what it needs to happen is I need to be in the margins having them serve me communion. And I think that in just the course of the last year, um, just seeing that the spirit is so active in those margins, uh, active among LGBTQ Christians, active among, uh, you know, women who maybe can't find a place in leadership in in the more conservative world, active certainly among, uh, you know, ethnic minorities, people of color, you know, that's actually where the spirit's doing a lot of great work. Maybe I need to be on my knees getting communion from them. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, As opposed to like, oh, look at me graciously opening the table. Uh, So I've had kind of this like, this whole shift in orientation, I guess you could say, and how I even see that uh, as I see God's presence in these communities, um, 
that uh, are often sidelined and for whom the Bible has been used uh, against. So, I mean, you look at how the Bible's been used to hurt LGBTQ people, how it's been used to hurt people of color. I mean, that's some pretty significant stories there of, you know, the a literalist interpretation of slaves obey your masters has wreaked havoc on, on the story of our country and on the story of the world. And so, um, and yet to see the folks coming from, you know, that background and uh, folks, you know, who have been hurt by the Bible, seeing them reclaim the Bible in some powerful ways, uh, just it, it's one more testimony to why the Bible is so great and so amazing and so just life-giving. So, you know, you have the same folks who who were told, you know, well, the Bible says, clear and right. plain, slaves obey your masters, That's taking right. it back and saying, also, yeah, you know what else the Bible says? Like, let my people go, That's <laughs> you right. know, and, and to see that the way that, um, you know, those folks have kind of traced that thread of justice through scripture and uh, how they've used scripture for their own liberation. That's um, right. Yeah. It's, it's, again, it's just kind of, it's lately I've been trying to reorient myself around that and say, it's not necessarily about me opening the doors, which I hope I do it's to good. everyone. It's also about me going uh, and receiving communion and receiving the sacraments from from these people <laughs> who seem to know yeah. a thing or two about the Bible and a thing or two about Jesus. It's no joke what you're saying. This um, was just a real key piece of my story in the last maybe four years mm -hmm. was discovering, <laughs> which isn't hard to discover, it just matters where you're looking, right. um, but discovering so much fruit um, within the communities that were being um, held back or held out. Um, and it was the fruit that I could not get away from because, mm -hmm. well, like specifically, I, and this has to do with all the communities you just named women in leadership, people of color, um, the LGBTQ community, but specifically with the gay community, um, watching the, f watching the fruit in their communities. Like when you are just a, affirmed human being and you're flourishing in your gifts and in your church was, mm -hmm. I, it was undeniable. I yeah. did, it was, it was, it would not be denied. Like oh, yeah. you would only, you would have to be a liar yeah. or <laughs> just willfully obtuse to not be able to say, but this looks like flourishing. Right. I really love Jesus. Too. Yeah. And, and, and there's so much um, good fruit out of it. And, um, I, I would say the same for women in spiritual leadership. I mean, the amount of fruit underneath um, the teaching of women, the leadership of women, the inclusion of their voices, their inclusion of their interpretations and their scholarship. It's just undeniably good. Yeah. And so I, you're right. It's not our table. Yeah. <laughs> we don't, we're right. not the ones who get to say, come to the table. Uh, we're not the host. Um, Jesus and so, the table. Yep. <laughs> yeah, true. And so I, I, I want people listening to know that if it feels like you're in a faith community where the table is being manned and staffed and enforced by a group of watchers who are human, you might just need a new table. Right. Uh, you might just need to go somewhere else and see where there is actually deep flourishing fruit, um, under sort of a different type of leadership. So back to something you said, um, 
you did uh, a talk at Gordon College a few years ago. I'm going to have, I'll have a link, everybody, on my website if you want to um, listen to that. Um, and you were specifically talking about your sort of journey down the rabbit hole of a year of biblical womanhood, um, which was my first book of yours that I'd read. Um, but you did a talk on the idea of how to ask better questions. And I like this, uh, you made a really good point, And I have since read a lot of your work around this, um, that the word biblical it's, it's often used as an adjective to apply to really complicated, complex, nuanced subjects. And so we end up hearing terms like biblical marriage, biblical <laughs> politics, biblical stewardship, biblical womanhood. And so in essence, using the word biblically or biblical, it was sort of prescriptively instead of descriptively is inherently selective. So <laughs> I wonder if you could talk about your ideas there and your leadership on that idea that is a little bit weaponized. Yeah. Yeah. I don't love using the term biblical like that at all. Uh, uh-huh. it, this is one of those things that I start to get sweaty about. Yes. Um, yeah. Because, you know, anytime we throw around the word biblical, we're taking, first of all, it's very reductive because we are taking, you know, an ancient collection of letters and laws and prophecies and traditions and stories and spanning thousands of years written by multiple authors to multiple different audiences in varying different contexts, subjected to many, many interpretations through the centuries, uh, and we're boiling it all down to an adjective. It yeah. just, to me, it's actually, frankly, a little disrespectful to the Bible to say, well, I have a biblical view of economics. Well, uh, okay, right. well, what? You know, which, right. which biblical view? <laughs> yeah, which one? Which which passages of scripture are you uh, uh, citing here? And then you take something, especially things that are so culturally nuanced, like womanhood or manhood. Yeah or marriage. You know, when we talk about biblical marriage, I mean, technically speaking, it's biblical for a woman to be sold by her father to pay off debt. That's right. You know, technically, it's biblical for her to be one of many wives. Um, That's right. I mean, even in the New Testament, it's biblical for her to cover her head when she prays. So we, you know, we trying to take all of these very culturally informed ideas and boil them down into a prescription for all women at all times or all marriages at all times. It's just unhelpful. I just, I just don't yeah. think that it's, it's a good way to approach the Bible. Um, that said, I do think most of us who are Christians want to have a sort of biblically informed view on <laughs> things like yes. marriage and womanhood and gender and sexuality and um, and politics and economics and all of those things. And I think that's good. I want to have a biblically informed view of those things. I want to know what what was you know what has been the tradition for thousands of years for the people of God. You know how do they think about this and how have they thought about that and how has it changed through the years. Um, and so I think it's it's one thing to be biblically informed. It's quite another to try and uh, and boil what you have learned down into uh, a few bullet points or into an mm-hmm. adjective. It's just not helpful. Um, and again, especially when you're talking about marriage, something like marriage, it's just, you know, our marriages today look nothing like they looked at the time um, that most of Scripture was written um, right. Even in the New Testament, you know, people think that, well, wives submit to your husbands. That sounds like, you know, wives and husbands. Well, wives and husbands did not interact in the, you know, Greco-Roman culture the way that they, they do today. Like, I am not the property of my husband. And so it's going to change right. how we interpret and apply that particular passage. That's why it's so important to understand the original context and the original audience for these uh, texts. 
Um, because otherwise we tend to impose our own selves and our own culture onto a text that it, for which that would be completely foreign. So we do this with all sorts of different parts of the Bible. We, we try to impose our cosmology onto Genesis 1 and 2. We try to impose our particular cultural views on marriage and family onto you know, the whole of scripture. And, and that's just actually, frankly, that's actually centering ourselves. That's actually, I think it's a, it's actually a more liberal <laughs> way of reading the Bible in the sense of it's more conservative, I think, to try and understand what was happening in the original uh, moment and context. Um, it's a stretch to, to try and impose ourselves and our own pet interests and our own culture onto the Bible when God saw fit to communicate to people in their own language and in their own culture with their own assumptions. Um, that makes me uncomfortable. I don't always like that God saw fit to do that, but that's just the case. So yeah, that's why I try to avoid using the term biblical, uh, just yeah. because I find it pretty reductive and, um, yeah, not particularly helpful, uh, for understanding. <laughs> no. And it's meant to sort of shut down conversation typically. Yeah. Um, as in, well, I, I have, have a biblical, biblical view. view. I you know. Know. So, okay. I which, which yeah. parts of the Bible? And I, I, yeah. I hear that at least once a day. Well, I, totally I believe the Bible. Well, okay. <laughs> I believe the Bible yes. too. So we just, yes. we seem to have, we seem to have some different approaches. <laughs> I, I, this conversation is really important. And I wonder, I don't even quite know how to phrase this question, but like, as you are so aptly explaining, um, you know, we're, we're taking a glimpse into genres and an agent culture and in a, in a scenario in which so many of our interpersonal relationships now are different. Our, the family dynamic is different. Culture is different. Um, our understanding of science is different. You know, there's just, there's been so much change. And so I wonder how you, I don't know quite how to ask this. How, how do you sort of decide as you spend so much time in the word and studying it and learning um, from it and about it. How do you decide um, that this this is a very culturally bound idea, mm -hmm. and and this one is more um, prescriptive. This one is more. Um, th this is going to stand the test of time. Does, how do you know when to hang on to um, women don't pray in church, right. and and how to, how. Or when to let go of that? Yeah, yeah. Like, why? Why do so many? Why do so many people take the? I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Well, that's for forever and all time. But when the Apostle Paul says there's not a church in the world where women don't cover their heads, <laughs> that for some reason mm -hmm. that gets dispensive. Well, the the thing is, there's no easy answer to that. That is the task of hermeneutics. <laughs> you know, the hermeneutics yeah. is what is your your sort of general posture towards the Bible? How do you interpret it, and how do you choose what ha what and how the Bible applies to us today. That is the work of the people of God. And yes, we are going to disagree fiercely about mm -hmm. it um, because it's important. Um, yes. but, and so the, the long answer is, well, you know, there's a lot of different ways to look at that. And, um, you know, we have to consider, you know, the original audience, what language gets used, where is that language used elsewhere? Um, you know, how can we compare it to other texts that were written at the time? I mean, it's, it's hard work, frankly, you have to sure kind of put your mind to it. So the, the long answer is, well, that's the work of hermeneutics and good luck, everybody. <laughs> the, the, <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> Go with God. Yes. What I appreciate is that uh, when Jesus was asked by an expert on the Bible, uh, an expert on the law, um, 
what's the most important part of the Bible (laughs) as it existed that day? Jesus, who usually didn't answer questions like that directly. You know, Jesus kind of preferred to tell a story or to ask another question in response. You know, he could be, he he was that kind of a teacher Mm -hmm. that was trying to invite, you know, further dialogue. But when it came to that question, he answers it very directly. Uh, Jesus says, the most important element of the law is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and all the prophets, which was his way of saying the entirety of Scripture, right. uh, hangs on those two commands, and which mm. is a very Jewish response to appeal to that particular text. But, um, but I, what I love about that is that that is the grid through which Christians should be reading the Bible. That's how Jesus taught us to read the Bible. That was Jesus's definition of biblical. Does it That's make good. you love God and love your neighbor better? Uh, and so, you know, when we get to the difficult texts, uh, we leave room for disagreement. We leave room for fierce disagreement. We talk about it. We hash it out. But at the end of the day, what, what moves the needle for me is, you know, am I interpreting in this in a way that helps me and helps my neighbor love God with all our heart, soul, minds, and strengths and love our neighbors as ourselves? Um, yeah. And that ha- has been pretty clarifying for me in the difficult times, uh, reading through that grid of love. That was the the posture Jesus asked us to take. And I think it's the posture we should take to the most difficult passages. So yeah, it's not, e- not easy work, but I do think that Jesus gave us, it's like, the, like what you said about the fruit. You can see the fruit of certain interpretations of scripture. And if the fruit is bad, you know, can anything bad come from a good tree? Jesus asked, you know, right. if the fruit is good, can good things like this come from a bad tree? So right. you know, if it's producing love for God and love for neighbor, I'm, I'm inclined to, um, to, to take that approach. And if it impedes that in any way, and I think that's a very Jesus-y way to approach it. It sure is. Um, Easier said than done, though. Easier said than done. Totally. There's plenty of passages that I'm like, well, I don't know what to do with this. (laughs) So, you know. And I I like, I appreciate the honesty um, because I, I don't, uh, you know, I only have my own experience to draw upon. So I I could not possibly speak for everybody, but I just was not raised in a faith community where questions were welcomed, really. Um, Or you know, if somebody asked a really like off the board question about the Bible, I mean, everybody's alarm bells would go off like, Oh no, (laughs) a slippery slope. I mean, here she goes. And so I I appreciate this sort of open-handed posture toward being a learner and learning new ideas and loving the Bible in its genre and context and allowing it to continue to change our lives without white knuckling it to death mm. and using it as a bludgeon. Like I, it's just a different type of approach to scripture um, to me that is so welcomed and it's so needed. And I, I, I wish that our church culture um, could approach scripture like this um, through the grid of God and people and, uh, and just be set free. It doesn't treat the Bible like it's so fragile (laughs) and God, like Mm -hmm. God is so fragile and breakable that if we have any questions or unresolved tensions that it just all falls apart. I think there's like, there's like so much fear around it. Like, well, if we're not all on the same page, if we don't all take the exact same thing from this, if there's any thing that remains troubling or unresolved, well, then we, you just chuck the whole thing. To me, that's like, what kind of fragile 
holy text is that? You know, I just think the Bible can hold up. I really, I think it can hold up to our fiercest questions and our, our hardest questions and our most, um, you know, significant disagreements. I think it's strong enough. And I think God's a big enough God to handle, (laughs) to handle my doubts, you know, to handle, handle it. When I say, I mean, it was Job, Job who finally is blessed by God. And it was Job who said, I desire to have an argument with God. Right. I love that one. (laughs) (laughs) Which I mean, that dude had every right. So (laughs) he sure did. (laughs) So, I mean, and it's Jacob who wrestled with God and wrestled with God until Jacob demands a blessing from God. How many times do we approach the Bible and say, all right, I'm going to wrestle with this text. And I'm going to wrestle until I get a blessing, God. <laughs> and, I, and it all points to a God and to a scripture that can handle it, that, that isn't fragile and breakable and always in need of constant defense. Um, that's good. Yeah. So that's why, yeah, I think it can, I think God and I think the Bible can handle it. Uh, I do too. So your book title, it ends with the phrase, loving the Bible again, which is so just those words communicate a lot, actually. So I wonder um, what you might tell some of our listeners who may have scars um, from those who have used the Bible to command submission or to just simply point out fatal flaws and essentially confirm that God is chronically disappointed in you at all times (laughs) and probably still will be when you barely make it into heaven and, or as a tool to really scare them, um, scare them into belief or to condemn their neighbors. Um, I, I wonder what you would say to that person about why it's really okay to love the Bible again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say to them first that like not everybody's ready to come back to the Bible. And I totally get that. Like some people it has been used so violently and so oppressively that even just hearing a few sentences from scripture can um, can really bring them back to some of the worst moments of their lives. And so not everybody's ready. And so I guess, you know, take your time and coming back and um, start in a place, you know, you don't have to start with those hard passages, start in a place that, uh, in a place in scripture where you maybe perhaps felt most welcome. Maybe it was just mm-hmm. in the stories that you remember as a child or, you know, maybe in the Psalms or, um, not that all the Psalms are easy, but uh, you know, start in a place that, that you're comfortable, actually. I, it's okay to, to do that if you've been deeply wounded by the Bible. Um, but I would also say, you know, we, when you pay attention uh, as you're engaging Scripture, you see these this thread where God is reaching out to and working through the people who have been hurt, the most marginalized, the most oppressed, um, that that's kind of who God picks (laughs) to be present with. And one of my favorite, one of the stories that came to life to me the most as I was writing this book, um, and this was thanks to the good work of uh, uh, womanist scholarship, which is black women engaging uh, scripture and engaging the scholarship, uh, was Hagar. You know, Hagar was uh, the slave, the Egyptian slave of Sarah and Abraham, and uh, she was forced into surrogacy uh, when Abraham couldn't and and Sarah couldn't have a child, uh, and they were doubting God's promises. She uh, was forced to have a child with Abraham, and that became Ishmael. Um, and what's fascinating about Hagar to me, there's a lot that's interesting about her, and she has resonated very much with uh, womanist scholars because she's, mm. you know, a, 
a, a slave from Africa who was forced into sure. surrogacy. So there's a there's yeah. there's a, there's a dovetail there between the stories Obviously. of her story and the story of many black women. Um, but she is the only person in all of Scripture to name God. God names lots of people in the Bible, <laughs> you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, but only Hagar. Uh, an African slave uh, at her worst moment when she'd been cast out of her home, left to die, dares to name God. (laughs) And you see this over and she names him the God who sees uh, because she says, you haven't, not only have you heard me in my distress, you have seen me in my distress. And so all throughout scripture, we encounter these people who in one way or another are naming God as the God who sees, you know, the woman who suffered from the bleeding from the hemorrhage, who just reached out and touched Jesus's garment. She had put her faith in the God who saw her in her suffering. And so, you know, when you're attuned to that, I think that uh, you can find in Scripture profound, significant hope that this is this is the God who sees you in your distress, and this is the God who not only sees you but um, welcomes you and uh, wants you in on this story of death and resurrection and redemption. Um, so it's hard to get people to that point, and I understand that, and um, particularly if there's been a lot of of suffering. But um, you know when. When we're ready, uh, and if you pay attention, uh, there's yeah, there's the God who sees you, uh, just waiting there. It's <laughs> so good, Rachel. That is so wonderful just to hear you s- explain it like that. And I hope that is encouraging to so many people who haven't been um, told that the Bible is wonderful and that God loves them and that He is a God who sees. So let me um, wrap up with this question we're asking all of our guests in the Exploring Our Faith series, which by the way, is incredibly um, overrepresented with Episcopalians. I didn't even do that on purpose. I don't know what happened. And I have Ian Cron and I have Barbara Brown Taylor and it's just, it's raining Episcopalians. Um, And this series has been great so far. Your interview with Lisa, Sharon Harper, fire. It was really, I've gone back and listened to it like three times because it's so hard to pick. She's so smart. She's like you. It's just, I'm like, I'm, I need to go back now and listen with a pen in hand and take notes. Well, I appreciate you ask good questions too. You're like Oprah. Well, but then I can't remember. It's too much information. I'm like, <laughs> wait a minute. I want to, I need to sit here and think about what you're saying. And so anyway, thank you. She is a really important leader she is. and really, really special. Anyway, I asked her this and I'm going to ask you this too. I wonder if you would just kind of leave us with either um, a quote from a, a leader that you love or, or a scripture that epitomizes your life's work, um, anything that you have found that you kind of hang on to that helps you to sort of keep your foot on the gas um, and keep going and keep pressing and keep studying and keep leading. Oh gosh, that's such a, I, I saw that you were going to ask that. I'm like, I don't know. I don't really, I mean, so I know. To pick. but if you're having, if you're having Barbara Brown Taylor on, I'll do a Barbara Brown Taylor quote. Cause she's yes. kind of, I love her, but she has one yeah. that's resonating with me for obvious reasons right now. Um, she says, new life starts in the dark, whether it's a seed in the ground, a baby in the womb or Jesus in the tomb, it starts in the dark. And I just have always resonated with that because it's, it's like this reminder that, you know, ours is not a God of self-improvement plans and 10 steps. <laughs> ours is a God of death and resurrection and that God can take anything and bring it to life. Um, and so in the tough moments, in the dark moments, 
that's one that I go back to is like, well, you know, if I'm going to be in on God's business, I got to be ready to, to be in the business of death and resurrection. That's what God that's does. Right. Um, yeah. So Babs for the win. Oh, <laughs> I love her she's so much. the actual best. <laughs> she is I mean, I was so nervous before interviewing her because she's been so important to me <laughs> and I just wanted to honor her so much. And I cried twice, <laughs> at least twice during my interview with her. Mm-hmm. She's just a, she, there's nobody like her. Yeah. Okay. Now listen, you're going to have a baby. And I just want to say that nobody is naming babies Jennifer anymore. And the name is yours if you would like it. Um, That's only a name of my generation. So uh, like in 30 years, the only Jennifers on earth are going to be a bunch of grandmas, (laughs) great grandmas. (laughs) And then it will come back. Because like my kid. That's true. For real. My kid is in, my first kid, my toddler, Henry, is in uh, preschool. And he's with, it's Henry, Spencer, Stella, August. All those old school names are back. Totally. Oliver, they're all back. And a few years, it's going to be Jennifer's all over the place. I know. I'm just saying it's it's yours. Um, Thank you for coming on this podcast. While you're in literal labor, like <laughs> but nobody will ever take that away from you. Nobody, there's that will never happen again. And I just honestly can't believe that we're marking it here to doing a podcast together in labor. Um, thank you for being who you are. I want to, I want to commend you for your, um, your intelligent courage and your thoughtful leadership, um, that you are not a leader that just throws emotional words all against the wall just to see if anything sticks, but you, you bring your, um, your heart and your brain to bear on all the work that you do. And it really matters. And I think for everybody listening today, who's new to you, I think I'm so thrilled that they'll be introduced to your work, um, and to your writing and that you hold a lot of space for hard questions and you push into ideas where other people run. And I, I promise you that I followed behind you. You've been a really important leader to me. And, um, and I drew a lot of courage from watching you just sort of stand steady. Um, even in really windy rooms, um, really stormy conversations. And you just held, you held with kindness, but with firmness and integrity. And, um, and I've, I've read so much of your research. You've just done so much work for the rest of us because you're so smart and intelligent. And so, um, I just thank you for being who you are and the kind of leader that you are. And I thank you for standing so, so strong next to our brothers and sisters who have been so harmed and so left out. And you're a fierce voice for justice and inclusion and scripture. And you didn't sacrifice any of it for any of it. It all, it all got to stay in the story and it's a good story. And I just love you. And I am so proud to be your friend and your sister. Oh, you're so kind, Jen. And I hope you know that the feelings really are mutual. There's something about people who can speak with courage and conviction when it's hard and when it costs them. Um, I deeply, deeply respect that. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you for taking the time. And um, I'll see you in a few months. All right. Sounds great. Okay. Bye.